Hey everyone, welcome back to the Inking Out Loud podcast. Last week, we returned from our long absence with the first half of The Hod King, book three of Josiah Bancroft's Books of Babel. And today, we're moving on with the rest of the book. I am your host, Drew McCaffrey, and as usual, I'm joined by my wife, Lauren McCaffrey. Cheers. In case you missed it last week, we have revamped our Patreon. We've got a new tier system and perks, and support for us there continues to keep the lights on, so I encourage everyone to take a look and consider subscribing. But at long last, we've reached the endgame of the Books of Babel. Last week, we left off as word reached Iron that Voletta had collapsed on her way backstage to meet with Maria, and Senlin had been made a hod by Duke Pell and cast into the Black Trail with John Taru. Iron hurries off to help Voletta, but it's a trap. The prince's crony traps her in the cooler while he himself pursues Voletta. Meanwhile, Voletta meets Maria unhindered, but fails to convince her to leave. Before Voletta can exit Maria's room, however, the prince traps her and attempts to rape her. Voletta fights back, panicking the prince, and is on the verge of escape when he shoots her in the head. Anne eventually gets Iron out of the cooler, and they rush to find Voletta and the prince. Iren promptly kills the prince and grabs Voletta, rushing out of the theater and through the streets of Pelphia, making a beeline for the state of art. Before she can get aboard, however, the Ararat opens fire and destroys the envelopes, keeping the Sphinx's beautiful vessel afloat. We return there to Senlin, as he, John, and Fingal journey through the black back tunnels and chimneys of the tower. They argue before finding an old mining camp and settle down for a meal. A chimney cat attacks, and though they take some wounds and lose their food and most of their supplies, they do manage to kill it. After the attack, they all agree to continue on and find Luke Marat. We then return to the crew of the State of Art with Edith, flashing back again to their stay with the Sphinx. Edith is brought to the Sphinx's attic, where she gets both a history lesson and is shown the great battery above, which is growing increasingly unstable. Then she is cast out of the Sphinx's lair with Byron, Voletta, Iron, and the Rettleman, sent to retrieve all the copies of the Bricklayer's granddaughter from the various ringdoms, starting with Pelphia. They fly around the tower in a show of force, drawing the attention of the ringdoms, learning how the ship works, and preparing for Pelphia. When they land, Edith meets with King Leonid, who quickly agrees to give her the painting in return for new technology from the Sphinx. Edith also makes friends with Pelphia's wakeman, Georgina Haste. As Haste shows Edith around the city over the next couple of days, however, Leonid begins to delay, saying they've misplaced the painting. Edith continues her search across Pelphia for Senlin, visiting the gatehouse and hearing of what she suspects was Senlin's exile, and then heading, finally, to the Colosseum. There, with General Eigengrau and Haste, she discovers a secret Hod Zealot project in the abandoned library. The Hods had been designing a massive tank called the Hod King, and the remaining Hod engineer kills himself with poison rather than be captured. Eventually, Edith decides to trust Haste and invites her aboard the State of Art for dinner, hoping to invite her to join the crew. While they're eating, Byron frets about a sudden silence from the Sphinx, and discovers a clockwork spy that recorded Leonid and Eigengrau planning to hijack the state of art. Eigengrau's troops arrive and board the ship after Redelman opens the door for them. He lures them to the bridge, where he slaughters the majority of them, but some scouts do find Byron and shoot off one of his antlers. Byron flees to the engine room, where he activates Ferdinand. Meanwhile, Edith slowly realizes that haste has turned against the Sphinx, not in support of the Pelphians, but rather as a zealot in the service of Luke Marat. 
Haste tries to kill Edith, but Edith manages to defeat her. Ferdinand destroys the remainder of Eigengrau's troops, but the general kills him. Byron shoots Eigengrau, who flees the ship and signals to the Ararat to fire. As the State of Arts envelopes burn and it plummets from its dock, he meets with the crew of the Ararat and calls for brandy. But the Rettlemen had finally figured out what the alarm was, which had been ringing for days. The State of Art had a levitation system, and it floats back up to the docks of Pelphia, where it ravages the defenses and blows the Ararat out of the sky. Eigengrau flees inward, only to run into Iron, who brutally kicks him down and kills him. In the aftermath, Valletta is clinging onto a bare thread of life. Iron demands that Rettleman give Valletta shots of the Sphinx's medium, and she recovers a tiny bit, but remains in a coma. Anne joins the crew, and Edith and Rettleman head to the Duke's manor to retrieve Maria. Edith crushes Will's hand and threatens him with ruin if, she, if he should ever search for Maria. Then they leave with Olivet and Maria in tow. They try to return to the Sphinx, but find the lair closed, and in turn begin their grand tour of the king ringdoms, working to find the rest of the paintings. And... At last, Senlin meets with Luke Marat in the throne room of his new hideout, where the Hod zealots have used the Hod king to burrow a hole to the exterior of the tower. Marat interrogates Senlin, John, and Fingal, who all barely manage to convince him that they are true zealots now. Marat reveals his plans for war, with Senlin now inextricably tangled with his army. And Valletta wakes up. And Valletta wakes up. <laughs> and shouts, Adam! Yes. Interesting. I was surprised. I mean, we can get right into style here. Um, I, I believe in the last episode, I made a prediction that this book would end with a scene with Adam on top of the tower. All right, and so you got a half, half. It didn't happen. I was surprised. You but had a reference. Yeah. Uh, I did. I mean, we always knew the final book was going to be about, or, or was going to involve the top of the tower, at least. Um, that's too much of a, you know, a hanging thread to not touch. Uh, but I, I was really expecting a, a full-blown scene to remind us of his circumstances. But I guess that's uh, too much of a mystery for Bancroft to reveal quite yet. I mean, it, it does make me want to reread those scenes with him at the top. Mm-hmm. And in the context of, like... Now I know about the battery, and I know about the lightning strike in the tower. Ooh. Yeah. We're going to talk about this beer later. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm just really fascinated by the structure of this book uh, in, in both good and bad ways, to be honest. Um, overall, I loved the book. This is probably my favorite. Definitely my favorite so far um easily but there is a more uh, obvious criticism of this book than i think the previous two and that's in bancroft's choice to have this um discrete one character per part structure where we just have senlin for part one and we just have iron and we just have edith I mean, we get a little bit of of other characters besides Volta. Edith. Yeah, we get well, a, this, this no, half. We, we get a little bit of like Redelman and Byron uh, yeah. along with Edith. Yes, but but the the real problem I think that comes in is that um, 
all three of these characters' arcs start at the same point. And so even as we're progressing into the book, we end up rewinding and having to cover some of the same ground again. I didn't have a problem with it in the first part because uh, in the first half of the book, because at that point it was Senlin and Iron, and they weren't together. Um, Senlin was doing his own thing and Iron was part of the main group. But then once we get to Edith in the second half in part three, suddenly we're getting many of the same scenes like Iron and Voletta in part two. Um, we're getting many of the same scenes that we had with them just from Edith's perspective. And that became um, tedious, maybe. Even, even though Bancroft didn't, he, he would try to skim over some of them. He would describe the scene instead of actually giving us the, the details that we got in, in Iron's point of view or Voletta's point of view. Um, uh, but it still felt like a drag, especially when we are, by the time we're starting Edith here, we're like 65% of the way through the book and, and things are really ramping up. And then suddenly I'm going back and I'm rereading scenes that I'm like, okay, this is development stuff that I read 200 pages ago. Why am I reading this again? And, and so that was frustrating. But once he got through that and he got to, you know, the interesting stuff as Edith began doing her own thing, got away from Iron and Voletta, uh, it, it really hooked me back in. Um, and so it, I think it was a, a fascinating, you know, like I said, a, a fascinating authorial choice. I have to wonder what those conversations were like with his editor. Um, I, I don't know. It, it's just, so for me as a writer, uh, this is a problem that I encountered when I was outlining and began working on the sequel to All Flames Cast. Because in All Flames Cast, I have a handful of different point of view characters. And again, in, in the sequel, I have a handful of different point of view characters. But it, it, the structure of the second book in my original outline, all of those characters for the second book, except for one, were together. And as I was working through the outline, I'm realizing, I'm like, this is boring. Because I'm showing a lot of the same scenes just from different perspectives. Mm. and I need to figure out how to make this work. And what I ended up kind of doing was I, I pulled another one of the main characters away from that group uh, and, and made that character um, go off and do their own thing. And, and so while eventually Bancroft gets to that point where, you know, once they get to Pelfia, Iron and Voletta do their own thing, Edith does her own thing, Rettleman does his own thing, but there were still those chapters for, I don't know, 40 or 50 pages of Edith on board the State of Art going through all the same stuff that we've gone through before with Valletta. So I guess as you're saying this, I'm thinking about um, the authors that I've seen repeat scenes from different perspectives well. Uh-huh. And usually it's new character equals new revelation in the scene that I didn't get before. Yeah. Something was held back, whatever mm -hmm. it is, or a perspective is 
so important because of what they know. Yeah, and at its best, he does make that that sort of thing work, like during the climax when at the end of uh, of The Leaping Lady, Iron sees the Ararat fire on the state of art. Right, and then we good. see that from Eigengrau's perspective and from Redelman's perspective, and it's a totally different thing. Yes. And now we have all the, the proper information. Uh, you know, it's... I, I, yeah. And I will say from a reader's perspective, some of the repeats with Edith, I completely forgave because I like her and I hmm. enjoyed time with her. Yeah. Those, those early scenes, the repeats. Yeah. That's what it was much, about. it wasn't about giving a different perspective on the scene because so much of it was just internalized where like Edith is kind of self-absorbed. Yeah. Trying to figure out her own stuff. And, and that made it, frustrating for me where I'm like, this isn't really giving a different perspective on this scene. It's just this scene is happening while she's thinking. Okay. Okay. So how would you have done that differently then? Would you have I would, added her perspective I, to the original scene or would no. you? Uh, I would have done one of, one of two things. Either I would have included Edith in part two uh, given her a couple of points of view in the early part of part two. Or I would have just skipped over writing those scenes in part three and had her have that same internal conflict or whatever, just in a different moment on board the ship. So that we're not seeing the same thing twice. Yeah, I, I would have guessed that you would separate her, have her moment separate. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but despite that, like I said, this is still my favorite of the three. and It definitely is yeah, for me, and, too. And I'm really, really excited for the final book now. Like, we're, we've got the end game set. Can't like, wait. This is- <laughs> there's there's going to be some crazy stuff going down in uh, the fall of Babel, which, yeah, I mean, heck of a title for the fourth book. But And I'm, I'm really pleased with uh, where our character arcs are going. Mm-hmm. Like I'm well, oh. mostly encouraged and <laughs> having fun and so I I think this this works more as a style point than a character point. In the final moments with Senlin talking with Luke Marat, and Luke Marat is like, you know are you really dedicated to the cause kind of thing? And he says, you know, so you're, you're really this angry at the Sphinx. You're really this vengeful. What would you do if you saw the Sphinx again? And, and Senlin's like, Oh, I would, I would kill the Sphinx right away. You know? And, and then Luke Marat pulls out a knife and I thought for sure he had her, he had the Sphinx and he was going to force Senlin to kill her. To prove oh, the loyalty no. because the Sphinx had disappeared. I and I was like, I, it has been a long time since I've felt that sense of dread reading a book where I was like, oh, <laughs> shit. Like, this is going to destroy Senlin right now. Oh. Like, what a way to end the book. Having him... <laughs> have to kill the Sphinx. And you know if he'd been put in that situation, the Sphinx oh, would be like... Man. You gotta do it. Kill you know? me. 
Um, she but, would have said, "Kill me." But I was relieved when when it was just you know, <laughs> Luke Mara cut his noose off and and welcomed him to the. That wasn't even a thought in my mind. I was just oh, like, man. <laughs> "Oh, how dramatic! You're going to cut the noose off." Okay. Oh yeah, I I thought he could cut his neck, but he's going to cut the noose. I thought Josiah Bancroft was about to <laughs> just lay the biggest whammy of all time to end the book. I would have. I would have stopped. Or or have it just be like, bring the Sphinx out, and boom, end of the book, and you don't get to see what Senlin chooses. <laughs> like it. <laughs> Oh man, I'm, okay. I'm glad he didn't, but that would have been one hell of an ending. <laughs> if that had happened with the Sphinx's death, I would have stopped and thrown my phone at a pillow or something at the floor, <laughs> like at the carpet, somewhere where I know it's not going to get destroyed, but I have the satisfaction of being like, ugh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so speaking of titles, I mentioned you know the Fall of Babel is a great title. I love the twist on the title of this book. Uh, the idea fun. of the Rat King versus the Hod King. I really like that. Yeah, that's. I mean, it's really unsettling too because it the, is you know, like a Rat King. You it's know, disturbing in, in, theme. In real life, like <laughs> if a Rat King develops, like they just die. They all die. Like, and. Uh, and and so there's there's a real kind of undercurrent of almost horror involved in how the Hod King is going to work, like that 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 produces a very unsettling mental image. The idea of humans being forced into the same kind of situation. Unfortunately, I have a very uh, gross picture. Great. In my mind. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure a lot of people do. Um, okay, so <laughs> it's shaped like a centipede, right? A uh, millipede. Millipede. Well, uh, okay, so it's a trilobite. Yeah, oh, uh, yes, but... But he describes the legs as like a millipede. <sighs> okay, so there's a movie called The Human Centipede. Yes, I'm aware of that one, yeah. I haven't seen it. I don't want to see it. I have not either, and I will not either. Uh, but yeah, I'm aware of the idea. Yeah. It was described to me, and yeah, that is what is in my head. Oof. <laughs> um, it's the same kind of thing where it's a disgusting collaborative that cannot end well. It's it's everybody, yeah, ending their lives with one. Yeah, we don't need to go into details on that. I'm not going to. Yeah. I'm not going to. Um, if you want to be disgusted, look it up. Yeah, uh, but but so I liked the twist on the the name. I I thought for sure when I was reading through the early books that the Hod King was going to end up being Senlin. I think I mentioned that even in the first book when John was first made a Hod. I thought I was he like, was going to. I did make that prediction that Senlin would become a Hod because no, I no, talked no. about how he was going. I thought he would be the hot king. Oh, I, I thought Senlin was. Um, but I, and I made the prediction that Senlin was going to become a hot. Yeah. yeah. Like I was talking about how he needs to experience everything in the tower that, you know, he has to go up and down it. And well, that, that was a and, given. He was messing with and the strong are, powers. And the hods are like this 
behind the scenes integral part of the tower so he would have to become a hod yeah uh, i didn't see it happening the way it did but i thought it would be much more a um uh voluntary thing that he would especially after reading arm of the sphinx that he would infiltrate the zealots on purpose um but which like he kind of did but he he didn't become a hod and you know, like go shave his head and and you know i thought he was lucky that he made it this far without becoming a hod Becoming like being made one, well, not, sure. not volunteering. I, I mean, yeah, he, he he certainly had his fair share of luck going through all the insane adventures that he had. But uh, but yeah, and so so we went from okay, I thought Selin was going to be the Hod King to oh no, Luke Marat is the Hod King to oh this is this other totally insane idea. It's no one person is the Hod King. It's a you know a play on a biological horror <laughs> i'm also curious um how much access they had to the sphinx's technology did they figure it out or did they take apart some of their stuff how did these engineers end up where they did where they're they have the knowledge to make this oh i don't know i mean they certainly captured a bunch of the sphinx's toys and i guess they also have the library as as a resource but still she seems so far and above everybody else with her abilities well i don't think the hod king is on her level oh by any means no i don't either i'm just surprised that it's it sounds like it's better than i would have expected yeah I, I mean, we'll see. Like, I don't, I didn't get the impression that it was, you know, powered by the medium. What is, what, no. what does Edith call it? Like the, the blood of time or something like that? I can't remember right now, but, yeah. uh, but, it, but was... it, it really sounds like it's more just like a machine that's going to be human powered. And <laughs> I can't, I can't help yeah. but think of Valletta and Redelman just like, dosing her with it just oh yeah that's gonna be i mean she's gonna be a little terror is what she's probably she's had a lot of that stuff um and she was already a little wild and mm-hmm. loves daring things now she can't yeah she's gonna be a she problem. can't even die <laughs> she's gonna be a problem <laughs> but also like i just picture him like his joy in being <laughs> Like dosing her, oh. you know he enjoyed that. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, he's he's the kind of the caricature of a mad scientist right now, where he's like yeah. super curious, yeah. but he just yeah. has no scruples about how he acquires knowledge. Yes, yes, and he can be led. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't take much. Yeah. Um. I, I guess, guess we're we're kind of getting into characters at this point. He's still childlike. He is. Um, man, the lobotomies were disturbing. Uh, yes. Great scene, but oof. I don't know. There, there was like a surprising amount of horror in this book. They were haunting. You're right, and yeah. and more than 
usual. It reminded me of um, uh, Sucker Punch, the movie. Yeah, which... which... Where, um, it's like the girl in, uh, you know, an old school, like, insane asylum, and she's ordered to get a lobotomy, and the whole movie, like, takes place in her mind as she's about to get lobotomized. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that part. Yeah. Um, really good movie. I thought that movie was great. It was, there's some fascinating layers to it. Uh, but, but yeah, the, the lobotomizing, like, man, just like the survivors, the guys who were just like stumbling around aimlessly Mm. despondent, like, oof. And then we have a moment where the impact is really brought home for us where I think it's Edith is thinking about them returning. She let them go and she's thinking about them returning to their families and what that's going to be. Yep. And the pain that that she has helped inflict. Oof. Well, that was an impactful moment. Hmm. I mean, if you take that out, if Josiah Bancroft doesn't add that in, then it's just kind of like. Well, he found really good ways to just add subtle impact to yeah. then critical it's moments. But but I was going to say, then it's mindless violence. Yeah. Where you just, you don't really see the result. It just, you're like, oh, defeated enemies, you know, a video game. Do-do-do. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, as we're talking about characters here, um, other than Rettleman, uh, who do you want to start with? Do you want to go with Semlin? No, not yet. Let's because we we got a lot less of him in the second half. Of exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, we got a lot of Valletta. We got a lot of Iron. We got a lot of Edith. No, Valletta's been unconscious the whole time. Oh, sorry. <laughs> From my perspective. Well, yeah. I mean, where we picked up in the second half, she had not been shot yet. Where where we should have picked up. Where yeah, I yeah. Have... I I should have just ended it at part two, at the end of part two, instead of like two chapters before the end of part two. Oh well, it was it was my fault for reading on. It would have um, given me a uh, an opportunity for um, nailing a prediction in the second half because. I, I told you after I finished part two um, that I was like, there's the Ararat firing on the state of art had nothing to do with Valletta and Iron. Well, yeah. And I, I thought was, that was, I was obvious. Like, there's, there's like a bigger, a bigger play happening here. I thought that was obvious though. Oh, well, it's not immediately obvious the way he writes the scene where like alarms are going off in the city and Iron's like getting chased. It doesn't make sense. Know. They haven't found the prince yet. No, but the point is they when Iron was fleeing, she first meets with like like she runs into some city guardsmen and they have no idea anything is off. Mm-hmm. And she hurries by them. And as she's hurrying by them, alarms start going off from behind her. And like the guards' whistles start going off and, and she's like, Oh, I gotta go, I gotta go. Like, so they have found the prince and they know she's getting away, but so like the there's there's an impression that okay word may have gotten ahead and they're shooting down the state of art mm. because of that but but yeah um, 
anyway, I don't know. So I you, you also thought, didn't think that Valletta was gonna be what? killed at that time. I think you. What did you say about her? When? Right before. Right when we ended. On the last episode. Yeah. Uh, so I thought she she had actually been roofied. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yep. Well, she wasn't roofied. She um, was not. It was much worse than that. <laughs> she got a bullet through her skull. Yeah, shocking that she was still breathing for a while. I mean, I've seen some pretty crazy stories of like construction workers who've had like nail nail yeah, guns go off. Yeah, that's make you watch them. Yeah. No, I, I'd heard about that before you. Um, well, I just made you watch. Like, there was one, there was a story I heard of years and years ago of a, a guy who was working on, like, some high-rise building, and he fell and landed with, like, a rebar that went, like, through his eye socket, or, or the outside of his eye socket, I think it was, and it just pushed his brain aside and <laughs> yeah. went through his head. Wild. And like, so like, it's possible to have traumatic head injuries, like penetrating head injuries that don't kill you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think the last one we watched was a nail gun. He didn't realize. Yeah, th- those are surprisingly common. Yeah, yeah. Um, actually, there's a famous one where I think it was a railroad worker and he happened to hit the spot where just his personality changed. Oh, jeez. I mean, I, I know I've heard of stories where, like, people have been shot and didn't realize it. Yeah. And, like, 30 years later, they have an ache and they go in and they do a scan and, like, oh, there's a bullet in you, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Okay, okay. I guess we're making excuses. It's like, man, but... I'm, I'm having migraines. I don't really know what's going on. Do I have a brain tumor? And they scan, no, you have a bullet in your head. Like, oh, it's a nail. Yeah, or a nail. <laughs> <laughs> I watch way too many stories of that. Yeah, but, you do. Um, <laughs> Valletta. Back, back to Valletta. Okay, so I, I will say what threw me off was he used the same line twice within a chapter. Hmm. Was like, and she never thought anything again or something and he never like he has this ending line when they both when she's shot and when he's killed that just made me I was like really let me look this up when so when she shot it was something like like everything went black and she didn't have a single thought ever again or something. Oh, wait, 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 wait. It's chapter 13, I believe. Um, it's the end of chapter 12. Okay, so. Yeah, okay, you're right. Valletta did not hear the second shot, nor did she see it, nor did she feel the bullet when it pierced her head. Then there was no room, and there was no light, and there was no her anymore. No her anymore. That's the, that's finality to me. I mean, I don't think we're going to get the same Valletta, so I agree with that finality. I don't know if I do, because she obviously remembers Adam. So, 
But then he uses it again, and that was finality for the prince. And I was like, okay, well, is... Okay, so for the prince... Um, all right. She pins him, and that goes to his point of view. Pinned to the wall with his feet off the floor, the prince could neither speak nor move. His eyes roved the dressing chamber as it filled with a numbing light. He felt a tepid wind blow upon his face. A scarf flew by, vibrant and familiar. The blue sky filled the room. A flock of scarves soared past, their corners flapping like wings. He looked down and found no ship below him and no earth beneath that. Everything was a darkening blue, a starless sky. He began to fall and fell forever. I don't think those are the same forever. at all. Forever. I, I, I don't have a problem. He gives us There's... phrasing that says it's forever and then takes it back with Valetta at the end. So are we taking it back with the prince too? There, the word forever was not used with Valetta. Yeah, it wasn't the exact same phrasing, but it was just clear I, I finality and... Well, I, I don't think that there's any kind of taking it back with Valletta. I I think we're going to get a very different person. She died and was brought back. I guess we'll see. We'll see. Because yeah. like Just because she has memory doesn't mean she's going to have the same personality. Okay, so Rettleman, the first time he died, lost everything. Didn't remember anything. Started over in a childlike state. But the second time he started over, he has memory. Mm -hmm. And he has, like, mega, like, deep past memories and, like, beginning of time memories and weird stuff. Oh, the pre-existence, yeah. Yeah, he's got some weird, weird, weird stuff going on. Yeah, but he he remembers and he's kind of in a general way the same person. Yeah. Yeah. Uh yeah, so with Voletta, I mean I, I only foresee problems. Um she may get ultimately, you know, saved and brought back around, but Well the Sphinx is gonna do everything in her power. You think the Sphinx is gonna get a chance? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> but if the Sphinx has a chance, she will. Yeah. The Sphinx does really like Valletta. Exactly. So. Uh, Iron. She didn't die. I'm yeah. still waiting for it. I'm still waiting for it. No, no. We <laughs> added layers to her, so no. Yeah, it, it is. Some of the death flags have dropped because of Anne. Okay. I didn't... But at the same time, all the new death flags have popped up because of Anne. I don't know about the new death flags. Tell, tell me she's, what you're talking about. She's finally, like, getting a conclusion or, or a fulfillment in her pursuit of, like, love and a pursuit of a child. And Valletta is going to be that child. Mm. And she has Anne to, like, be a... It, it, it's it, it's not like a traditional family, but it, it is Iron's replacement for that idea of a traditional family. That Valletta nursing and and bringing Valletta back is going to be her child that she wanted 
that was like a, a core thing for her in this book. And then Anne being like her, her partner in this. Um, but that means she's like closing in on the fulfillment of, you know, those things she was looking for. And that means she can die. <laughs> her character arc can end. I don't think we're at fulfillment here, Drew. I, I don't think know. we've got a ways to go. I'm I'm just telling you, like I expect Iron to die every I, I have expected it every episode. There's another series that we've done on the show that I um I'm not gonna say what or or at what point in the series, but um in case listeners, you know, haven't haven't read that other one, but there was a certain character who started having death flags popping up and I was like, Oh, this person's going to die. I don't know if it's going to be this book, but if, if it's not this book, I'm going to expect it every book after that. And it was like two books later and the character died. And I was like, yup, saw that. (laughs) I see the death flags, but I don't want to. So yeah. I did not see any kind of death flags for Boletta, which is why that was such a shocking scene. But then once we have the... By the way, I do feel vindicated. You remember what I was saying about her maturity when she's confronting Maria. She does get to Maria. Mm. She really pissed Maria off. Like, she upset Maria. She had to flee the room. She should have been upset. Yeah. yeah. She also said what I said. She's like, you don't get to make that choice that Senlin doesn't get to know about the mm-hmm. baby girl. Yep. You don't get to decide that. And she's like, please promise me you won't tell him. And he's like, mm, no, no. I was also happy with how she reacted to the prince trying to go after her. She was like, you bleepity bleep. She she didn't hesitate in any way to fight back. That was a good scene. Of course not. She's uh, strong. I mean, a big part of her her character is the idea of freedom, and that's why it's so tragic at the end of this that she's a slave in all but name now. So. Well, uh, hopefully we find out soon uh, how to get more of that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you gotta wonder, if the Sphinx has gone totally silent, are Wakemen all over the tower gonna stop getting their shipments? That seems pretty stupid of her not to and that's foresee gonna be, that It's gonna be a real problem uh, in the coming war against the Hods if her best soldiers are so, out of juice. Uh, either she automated that, or we have to figure it out. Yep. Um, yep. I see her... Making decent plans or leaving instructions, leaving she, instructions at the very least. But who would she leave the instructions with? Both Byron and Ferdinand are out of out of her ring so of the tower. Can't make something else, or the only other one there activate? is the only other one there is the librarian. Who's, remember, what are you telling Byron me? thinks about it, where he's concerned that the Sphinx might have run out of vials that she couldn't replace her own, and he's like. Maybe she tried to convince the librarian he's the only other one, and the librarian might have just wandered off because he's a cat. Except the entire museum of the ones she had to deactivate. She can't reactivate one of them or make a new one. 
I mean, making a new one's probably really hard if she doesn't have like a zoo full of animals. But and reactivating the old ones, she who knows if to... they'll work? There's a reason she retired them. Yeah, because they hurt others. Others. Yeah. And none her. of them are specifically made to help her. They were for other duties. She doesn't I don't I don't think there's and, no, and if you remember no. right, those weren't half animal. Some of them weren't. Right. So yeah. she could make a clockwork one. Yeah, but but the clockwork ones are not as good. Whatever. I don't know, but if you just need well, a battery and here's the thing. Does she have the time to create a new thing just to replace her batteries? If she thinks, oh, I can do it myself, and then realizes I can't do it myself, uh-oh, I'm running out of time. Like, it seems very short-sighted of somebody who's lived for this long. Oh. Well, unless she was mistaken. She clearly told Byron, I can handle it. I don't know. I, I, I can't see it being over. Um, not, not without some thread here. And, and even if that's a sheet of instructions. Yeah. I don't know what the, what happened with the Sphinx. I'm not even sure I have a prediction on what happened with the Sphinx. My prediction would have been Luke Marad got her. I don't think so. But, but at least as of the end of the book, that's not the case. He's too, he's too prideful to actually figure everything out. I don't think figuring everything out matters. I think if he could take her out, he would do it in a heartbeat. Yeah, figuring out how to get to her. Oh, no, he's definitely not too prideful for that. He, he, he would spent have done all the, it already. He spent all the time and energy on making the hot king. Yeah. He saw that as a more important Can thing of, like, let's build an indestructible war machine. But if he saw the opportunity to, like penetrate that far up the tower and actually get into the Sphinx's quarters. Like, yeah, I don't, I don't think he'd hesitate on that. She's got all. defenses. Good luck. Yeah. Well, that's why he made the hot King. I don't think it's good enough. We'll find out. We'll find out. <laughs> I'm just saying. But yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, the, the Sphinx's silence is definitely disturbing. It's been like um, multiple days. Okay. Another thing to point out though. Okay. Okay, so at the very end, we had the clockwork spy. Yeah. That we don't necessarily know that Byron sent out for the purpose of spying on the king. But it showed him it showed the him. footage mm -hmm. at the right time. Yep. And that feels like something the Sphinx would have done. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I yeah. could I could also um, see her uh, closing herself off because she sees this as the time for them to grow on their own. Okay, no, I, I do have a theory. Okay. I think she's dealing with the top of the tower. Oh. I think she went up to the sparking men to try to get help with the battery. Well, she was working on her intimidating... Yeah. Costume. I, I think she's busy at the top of the tower and she was like, okay, um, I can't handhold them, but I'll do what I can in my like spare moment. Oh, I'll send a spy down and oh, you know. Yeah, okay. Uh, I like I like that theory. I have no idea if the sparking men, the the, the whole society at the top of the tower is you know, sympathetic to her if they're just like doing their own thing and they don't want anybody messing uh, with if them. They if they're the outright lightning, antagonistic, like if they revere the lightning, 
then they will revere her control of it. I don't know. Like it's it's very weird to me that she has this role of like caretaker of the tower and doesn't have a tight connection with the top of the tower. Hmm. Well, maybe we just don't know anything yet. And yeah, yeah. I'm really excited for the last book. <laughs> I'll say that. I'm really excited. Starting it tomorrow. Well, that's the the crazy thing is I also, because I couldn't start it today, I started another book and I'm like really hooked. So I'm going to have to figure out how I want to balance my reading. Oh, you've got so much driving time. Too bad you don't listen. I do not listen. Uh, nope. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh yeah, that's true. I, think, I, I am going to be driving like two and a half hours tomorrow to go to a hockey tournament. It's going to suck. That that drive is brutal. It's not that bad. Much worse is Alamosa to Durango. You have <laughs> no idea. I, I've never been to Alamosa, so I don't, but... Eh. Yeah. There's nothing. Anyways... I want to talk about Georgina because we're on Wakeman slash. Yeah. Okay. So Georgina and Edith. I liked her. I liked their relationship. Mm -hmm. And the second she said, I want to see the ship. I was like, ah. Yeah. Okay. So we we had talked and, and you said without like going into details because we do a pretty good job of like, talking about the books we read together, but not going into the stuff we want to talk about on the podcast. Yes. But you mentioned there was that you had a hope. And then there was a specific line that a character said that just like dashed your hope. And I was so (laughs) curious about what that line would be. And, uh, and I wondered if, if that was it, but it also felt like, I don't know, for me, it felt a little too obvious. Like, to me, it was like, of course she wants to get on the ship. Everybody wants to get on the ship. No, I think it was the context that like made me go, hmm, no. So when she said that, did you have any inkling that she was working with the Hods? That was the surprise to me. Uh, I, I knew that she was against us. I wasn't certain whether it was the King or the Hods. So it honestly, like, it honestly never know. crossed my mind. Which is kind of dumb that it didn't, especially given the sequence in the Coliseum where she talks about how, like, oh, yeah, I would go in and practice with these guys and I hung out with them all the time. Uh, Oh, yeah, it also adds up. But I I didn't see it coming. And then when it did, it was one of those just, like, surprising but inevitable reveals. It was a very Sanderson-esque kind of reveal. The sort of thing that I... Uh, when I'm reading Brandon, I'm on the lookout for, but I'm not as much on the lookout for with other authors. You're not the suspicious gamer? No. Oh my gosh. So we've been playing D&D <laughs> together uh, with a, a group of friends. It's our first time playing D&D. And Lauren like already has a reputation of just being... Utterly paranoid with her character, where her we, character just doesn't believe a word anybody says. <laughs> we lost. We lost a character in our party. He failed his his death saves. Mm-hmm. All right, it was traumatic for me. 
in my character. Yeah, but that had nothing to do with like believing or disbelieving information. That was he rolled a nat one on a death save. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, well, everything else. Like, all truth is, is no longer truth, because he was supposed to live. Because Kiernan died. Yes. <laughs> it oh, made my nice. worldview just crumble. And and also, I have three madness tokens, Drew. Yeah, it's true. You do. Uh, but, but no, like, there is a, a real phenomenon for me as a reader where, depending on who I'm reading, I'm approaching the story in different ways. And for an author like Josiah Bancroft, where, you know, I haven't read him before this series. I don't know how he works as an author the way I do Brandon Sanderson. You know, I don't know how he works as an author the way I do Gene Wolfe or Glenn Cook or Matthew Stover. Like, and so when I'm approaching a Sanderson book now, I'm looking for specific signposts. I, I understand how Sanderson likes to foreshadow things. And so it's very rare now that he surprises me with his books. He still manages to sneak in a few things here and there. Well, I think this next but, book is going to be a surprise. Well, so. yeah, the, the next book that Lauren's talking about is Stormlight 5. So I fully expect some surprises here. But I also fully expect that like a lot of the things we've already figured out. But either way, with Bancroft... I am not walking into these books expecting a certain type of thing. Now I am. Because this was a, a twist of the sort that Brandon would do. And this is the most overt one of them he's done so far in the books of Babel. And I'm like, okay, this is what, you know, this is, this is what he's doing here. I mean, okay. I, I guess I am the suspicious gamer because I also suspected Anne because she was way too helpful. You did. You did suspect Anne. She was way you even too convinced helpful. me to suspect Anne. Ha, yes. <laughs> <laughs> like I, when she showed up outside the the ship at the end, I was like, oh, she's the final spy sent by Pelphia. <laughs> no. <laughs> she, just, she might still be. <laughs> very. It is possible. It's less. It's I do think unlikely. her feelings for Iron are at least. Uh, genuine. genuine, yeah, but she may also have ulterior motives. She didn't. She just said she was cast out on her ear. She didn't say why. Mm, <laughs> I, at this time, do not suspect her because we had point of views from her. We did, yeah. Um, man, <laughs> yeah. Let's see. Uh, so, but Byron? yeah, so no, Geor- Georgine and and, uh, and Edith, we we've only brushed on them. That was nice. That was a nice friendship. Again, I think there was genuine f- friendship, genuine respect, yes. and and like yes. yes on uh, on Haste's part. But you also see the insidiousness of what Luke Marad is doing to these people. Uh, that even somebody you respect and trust, you're willing to kill for the cause. So. It's not very nice, Drew. Yeah. And Edith, man, she had a rough go of things. It would be nice if she could have some more friends. (sighs) Okay. 
There's a real love triangle now. <laughs> no, it's over. It's ended. It's ended. Why do you say that? Because she said that. She cut herself off emotionally. She described how painful exactly that it was. You, you think that's... I think that's the end. An easy cut and dry? I don't. I think she... <laughs> I think because there's a, a baby involved. That does complicate things. But And because she's a but virtuous it's not, character. But it's not just her choice here. We still have Senlin. Senlin has decided. He decided on Edith. No. He realized along the trail that he completely misread Maria and she was speaking in code to him. Yes. He completely misread her. But he still sees that as a lost cause. No, he doesn't. I think he does. He understands now that she said and did what she did because of the baby. Yeah, yeah, I get that. But I, I don't think he sees, like he has way more important things in front of him now than worrying about rescuing Maria. No, no, not even the baby. He has much more immediate and important things, namely like not being killed by the Hods and stopping the destruction of the tower. And, and he's going to ultimately end up in front of both of them and have to make a decision. All of this effort is for the baby at this point. That is his driving force his ultimate goal he'll his i will i don't think it's gonna be as easy as you you are making it out to be no but his will is complete at this point i don't think it is i i do think and i hope that he chooses maria he will Um, choose whatever he has to choose for the baby therefore Decision done. <laughs> decision done. Every I don't, I don't think it. This, I don't think this decision's done the way you're making choice, it out to be. Every choice <laughs> that they are both making at this point is all about the baby. That's certainly the case with Maria, yeah. And Senlin, but too. no, I'm saying Senlin has other things that are like he's you know. doing these things to make it back to make a safe place so that the baby can live. <sighs> We'll see. Okay, Drew. All right. I'm just saying, you, right. you're making it sound like this is like a cut and dry, done deal. It's done. I think it's going to be very messy. So. I mean, uh, <laughs> I suppose if his editors came to him and were like, make it messy. No, I don't think this is an editor's thing at all. I think I this think is, is an author thing. I think like, it is. you don't make things easy for your characters. That's. Like, you need conflict. You There's- need. You need people to fail and make mistakes and then find victory through it. There's plenty of that. (laughs) There's plenty of it. (laughs) Lauren's a romantic at heart. What? No way. (laughs) Okay. This is just such a good series so far. Like, I, I love how much we can disagree on what's going on in it and we have basically from the get-go disagreed on a lot of things yeah like it's where the character's going who they are yeah (laughs) and it's been fun because like some of it you're right and some of it i'm right and like that's a sign of a good writer i mean bancroft 
he has really impressed me with this. Uh, I've mentioned it on earlier episodes. This is those first two books far and away the best self-published fantasy I have ever encountered. Like not even close. Yeah. You've, you've talked a little bit about it. Yeah. Like I, I've read, um, I haven't read a ton of self-published fantasy, but I, in recent years, especially have gone out of my way to check out the stuff that, you know, has won the indie awards and, and, you know, Mark Lawrence's SF, uh, what is that? Like SFPBO self or self-published fantasy blog off SPFBO. Um, like I've looked at some of his award winners and, you know, and this was one of those. Oh, you know. Uh, but this is way better than everything else I've read. <laughs> well, we did read a certain fanfic that was, I think, originally self-published. What? And now is is huge. And oh, you're talking about Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> yeah, Lauren and I, like, at one point, were considering doing a, a Patreon thing, Franking Out Loud, where we, like, get drunk and... and read aloud 50 shades of gray to each other it was great fun yeah we did we did one video that was like i don't know 15 two. or 20 minutes i think two did we do two videos yeah it's we could not we could not be serious and we could not be sober yeah um, that was rough <laughs> even with an editor can you imagine what that looked like without an editor? when she was like writing on her phone on the subway or whatever it was yeah Oof. on her blackberry yeah yikes but yeah like this uh bancroft does give me you know some hope for other self-published fantasy in the future it also makes like honestly i'm in a situation where you know i'm still trying to get traditionally published uh granted i haven't been trying that hard recently um i've been working on a new book but uh, the idea of self-publishing All Flames cast has definitely crossed my mind. And knowing that there is stuff of this quality out there that gives respectability to self-published fantasy, you know, is, is at least one pebble on the scale yeah. weighing toward, uh, yeah. you know, self-publishing my own stuff because... Like, I, I do know. I mean, I've had, like, friends who subscribe to Kindle Unlimited and read a bunch of the fantasy on there, and they're like... Oh, no. All this is so bad. Oh, no. <laughs> um, I, I have one friend who who read All Flames Cast and was like, you should self-publish this just so I know there will be something good on Kindle Unlimited. <laughs> she did really like All Flames Cast, but she was angry at, at certain points, but for, for good reason. <laughs> For reasons that I, I hoped would make people angry. <laughs> anyway, anyway. The Hot King. Uh, okay, so we have Byron to talk about. Oh, Byron is so wonderful. <laughs> I love Byron. Byron's the best. Okay, so we were, <laughs> we were just watching Henrik Lundqvist um, on TV. Yeah, during the Stanley Cup final. Yeah. And I kind of... I'm thinking of Byron. I, I see it. He's got just the the uh, the bearing, you know. The very put together, the yeah. caring about the details, and yep. the immaculate dress, and the confidence in 
I, I love this comparison. I love it so much. Okay, if you guys don't know who Heinrich Lundquist is, you should look him up. Um, he does have an identical twin, but... He has he, an identical twin who is somehow, despite an identical twin, much less handsome. He's the one who's extremely well-dressed. Yeah, th- this guy, you know, if, if you're a hockey fan, you probably know who he is. If you're not a hockey fan, you don't. He was um, the best goalie of his generation, uh, one of the best goalies in the history of hockey. Um, Swedish player, played for the New York Rangers, uh, won a gold medal for Sweden in the Olympics. Uh, and on top of that, you know, like, Huge probably could have been humanitarian. Probably could have been a pro tennis player. He's a tremendous he's philanthropist. Oh yeah, oh yeah. He's great friends with John McEnroe. Oh my. Like he, he yeah, he, um, and um, and Roger Federer. Mm. Great friends with both of them. Um, he, like, he's in a celebrity rock band in New York City. He's a great <laughs> guitarist. <forgot> <laughs> like, but on top of that, he is just like he gained the reputation of like he's the best dressed player in the NHL. And he's retired now and he's doing broadcasting and you see him on these panels and everybody on the panel, you know, they're wearing their suits and stuff. And Lundquist makes them all look like peasants. He does. (laughs) Uh, He does. He's, he's, he's on, you know, broadcast panels in like an unbelievably tailored three piece suit, you know, with, with incredible cufflinks and, uh, and mean, a perfectly folded kerchief in his pocket. Yeah, his, his pocket linen's impeccable. Like it, the, <laughs> the guys. So, like, I get the comparison to Byron. That that really cracks me up, and I love it. Um, but I also love about Byron how he engages with his emotions in the end of this book. It was beautiful. Like, I felt really sad for him when he decides I am actually a coward, but then he overcomes it by saying, "Well, it's better for me to die." And so he charges out expecting to die and then doesn't. And then he avenges Ferdinand. Cool. Yeah. I, and Ferdinand. Yeah, I know. I knew that was going to be rough for you. That Ferdinand was literally a dog. Well, it was more than that. It was just like his, his simple joy because mm-hmm. he's a dog <laughs> thanks <Drew. laughs> like that's how they are like it made so much sense to me that do you do you think that miles likes simple joys <laughs> yes <laughs> miles wants to be touched and he wants to chase tennis balls and he wants to play tug of war he he has a hierarchy of needs. He's very complicated yeah. <laughs> and very OCD. But they are very simple needs. <laughs> no, he needs all of it. <laughs> my my parents have is, a, yeah. a very special golden retriever. It's a strange golden retriever. <laughs> um, we this is our third one. We we had normal ones before this one, and then this one like I've never seen a a dog throw a temper tantrum before. Yeah, he's a punk. Um, yeah. There was one night I was staying, you know, Lauren and I were sleeping in the guest room at uh, her parents' place. And we wanted to watch a movie on our laptop in bed. And the dog was trying to, like, lie down across our laps. And we're like, no, no, Miles, like, 
you got to move to the end of the bed so we can watch our movie. And he gets off the bed and he throws a temper tantrum. And then he steals my phone off the phone charger and takes it downstairs and hides it. He So he was <laughs> crying and scratching the wall and the carpet and the bed and rolling around and... <laughs> and we're going on some crazy tangents today. This is this is something. And we're not even through characters. Yeah, we do need okay. to move. We do need to move here. <laughs> um, so characters we haven't talked about. We talked about Valletta. We talked about Iron. We talked about Edith and Haste and Senlin. We've talked about Maria. Have we talked enough about Maria? No. Because we did get one more scene with her at the end here. Uh yes. Yes. Man, like, when Edith goes in there and we see, like, there are actual bruises around her wrists. Oh, and and she's wild-eyed. She's She's not beat down. So so when we've seen her (sighs) in in the other scenes, she's been able to put on an act. Yeah. And now we have her at a time when she can't. Yeah, she's totally raw, emotionally naked. Like, she's talking with Edith, and she keeps, like, looking to Will, Mm. terrified of him. Man, I'm glad she's out. I'm really glad she's out. I'm excited to get to have her as part of the crew. Um, I think she has great potential as a main character. Um, You know, uh, give give me Mario points of view. Give me Mario points of view. In the final book. I think she can be a huge asset to this team. She's proven herself. Yeah, she's very smart. Very resourceful. She was a precocious student. We know that there is a, a great deal of respect from Senlin. Because he knows that she is capable and intelligent. And we watch her navigate the tower very quickly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Until the point where she is... Worried about the baby, and yep. she makes these choices. Desperate choices. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm excited. I'm also excited, and, and I like this. I I appreciate how Bancroft subverted the trope, where this starts off as Maria is the one who needs to be saved, and Senlin is building a team around him to... to rescue her and now Senlin is the one that the team is trying to save I like um, I like his handle on things I don't think he can do it on his own but I'm proud of oh, yeah. the plans <laughs> he's made and I'm proud of him taking initiative here I, I love the way Senlin thinks on his feet he, he okay so when you're looking at the premise of the series, you're like, okay, a school teacher loses his wife in the Tower of Babel and he has to climb the tower and find her. And you're like, okay, well, he's a school teacher. Well, oh, so he's going to have to use his wits. Well, and on top you know. of that, he's not a charismatic school teacher. He's a nerdy school teacher. Right. Yeah. Um, but, but on paper, you're like, okay, he's going to have to use his wits to do this. Yeah. But then as you go through it and he starts showing like not not necessarily like his wits, but like nerves. 
street smarts and like he's a fighter all of a sudden and like he he has a very brash way of going about things instead of being the like sly witty you know diplomat and then when when he starts losing the ability to like like, as it goes on essentially what we see is that he is just a really adept social chameleon he adapts to his situations and finds ways to gain a lever where he now as part of the hods he can't be brash and, and forthright and and charismatic and gather a team around him and bully their way through anymore and now he's becoming the witty sly two-faced you know like i i just i love how he has become this uh, like conglomeration of aspects. He goes from desperate tourist in the first book to like, he finds his spot in uh, new Babel and he's like, all right, I'm an administrator. I run things. And, and we know that that wasn't necessarily his strength as a school teacher. He talks about in the first book, how he like, he always had troublemakers and he struggled to, deal with the troublemakers and and eventually he'd get them to come around but he that wasn't like his strength he wanted to just lecture and then he becomes a talented administrator and starts making money for fingal and and doing all that and then he has to adapt again and he becomes the pirate captain and he has to be straightforward and and aggressive in order to get what he needs and then he has that taken out from underneath him and then he has to become a diplomat he has to become a, a, a businessman as Pinfield. And then he has that stripped from him where he can't, he's not in charge anymore. He can't manipulate the people in the directions. Like he's not the one deciding the direction of things. And now he's trying to fight back and find agency again. And so he's, he's the underdog. He's been reduced back to the point he was as a desperate tourist, but now he has all of this experience and understanding that he can adapt to his situation. I don't I don't see him as as desperate as you kind of imply here. Um and I think that's largely if you hold on. When okay. There's a point <laughs> where Josiah Bancroft brings us back in Senlin's head to remind us that he would not have lied like he is about to before this. Okay. And he makes a conscious choice to say whatever he has to say. Oh yeah, totally. To get through this situation. And he takes John and Fingal and he says, look, here's what you're going to do. Mm -hmm. And he says it with all confidence and direction. This is how we're going to play the game. And it's going yeah, yeah. to work. Because you're going to buy well, in. Okay. He does that because he's desperate. Because that is literally his only option. I think he feels I, a little bit of confidence. I mean, I don't. I, just, I really don't I think, think there is much confidence. I think he displayed a little bit of confidence. He displays it. But that's, that's him learning the game internally he knows like it's this or nothing so i may as well do this 
see, I see it as like, he knows I will not fail here. Oh no. I, I, am, I don't think there's any, any sort of assurance like that. He says, I, I will not. I decide not to crumble <laughs> no, here no. because I have a well, reason well, to live and that's my daughter. Well, there's a difference between saying like, I'm not going to give up and I know I'm going to succeed. No, there's it, a huge difference. Yeah. And I'm, I'm saying <laughs> I'm not going to give up is, is what's directing him right now. No, I, Yeah, I get that. I'm not disputing that. I'm saying that he is still desperate. He's, he only has one option in that moment. And he's like, well, I have to do this if I'm going to achieve my goal. But he also thinks back and he's like, ah, this is probably what the Sphinx wanted me to do in the first place. I am the thread uh-huh. and the lure. Mm-hmm. And I'm doing what she thought I would do. Yes. Here we go. Yeah. And I'm going to bait the trap. And I'm going to get him going. But he has no idea if it's going to work or not. To the very point that he gets well, released. Like he, like when he when he puts the rope around his neck, he's like, oh, well, I guess I'm getting hanged right now. Like The self-doubt <laughs> is not going to help right now. So he's decided not what are you, what are you talking to about? focus he, on it. He has constant self-doubt in this. Yes, but he's not going to focus <laughs> on it. He's going to move forward instead. <laughs> oh, man. Anyway. I'm happy for him. I'm proud of him. No, I, I love Senlin. He's a great main character. Uh, I liked him from the start. I have nope. grown in my enjoyment of it, him as a character. I wish we got more of him in this book. I'll, I'll give you that. That's fair. I was most hooked. This is my other... Uh, criticism i was most hooked during senlin's chapters in part one like the the opening act of this book was so good i tore through that like i that was the night that i just like read until whatever 345 where i was like well i can't sleep and it's 130 so i guess i'm just gonna read 250 pages of this book like yeah, I... I was pretty captivated with his parts. But then that night, I got through the black trail, and I get to part two, and it's like, oh, it's Valletta? All right, I'm going to bed. <laughs> I love Valletta's parts. I, mean, I like Valletta. No, I like part... all the main characters, but but it was an easy thing for me to put the book down once I wasn't in Senlin's perspective anymore. Okay. Okay. All right. Anybody else you want to talk about? Um, John Fingal. Uh, no. No. Um, I don't really have anything substantial to say. Brow. Fuck that guy. The king. Eh. Um, I'm excited to see more parts of the tower. Uh, who stole the painting? Marat. Luke Marat, for sure. Most likely, but I want it to be something else. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited to see more ringdoms. I think the idea of there being just so much of the tower still that we haven't seen, and like obviously we're not going to see the whole tower. Sure. uh, But there being so much yet to explore uh, gives 
uh, gives Bancroft a huge opportunity for creativity. He's done a good job so far of making each ringdom unique, uh, giving it its own feel and, and like, I don't know, just dazzle in a way. Even when it's like a drab or run down part of the tower, it, it has its, its dazzle. You know, so I'm excited to see what, what other ringdoms he has in store as they go on their, their tour to get the paintings. Um, I don't know. I, I'm just like, I'm, I'm really excited to, to get the final buck. Predictions. Predictions we haven't already made. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. I mean, the, the, the top of the tower is going to be such a big deal. Um, is the Sphinx alive? I think the Sphinx is alive. Uh, the Sphinx is going to die, for sure. Yes. Um, is she going to pass it on to Edith? Yes. So that's, okay, this is my like big prediction. Um, it's going to be messy, but Tom is going to choose Maria and Edith's like cons- uh, consolation prize, I guess, uh, is going to be taking up the mantle of the Sphinx and maintaining the tower. Uh, I don't think it's going to be the same sort of thing. The tower is going to fundamentally change. Um, I don't think like the tower is going to actually get destroyed or anything, uh, but I think there's going to be a fundamental change in how the tower works, uh, and Edith is going to be in part responsible for that. She is not going to be okay with a lot of the behaviors that have been okay so far. Oh, and like the different ringdoms and stuff? Yeah, like what led to her losing her arm. Yeah. No. Yeah. Um, Let's see. Still think Iron's going to die? I have no friggin' clue what's going to happen with Adam. Like He's the top gone. of the tower is just such a an enigma, and I love that. Like that is one thing I, I I gotta just give it up to Josiah Bancroft. He's done such a good job of keeping the like elements of the tower mysterious, despite us being three books in and having like a very detailed perspective on how the tower works now. Anyway, uh, let's see. I don't know. Adam, Voletta, Iron, Iron's gonna die. Valletta's going to be a giant handful. Rettleman's going to be a giant handful. That's a ticking time bomb. I think he's done a lot better. I mean, yeah, he has, but it's still a ticking time bomb. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Let's see. I think John Taru is going to die. It's going to be a really sad death. It will be really sad. Yeah, I like him. Uh, Fingal? Oh, he's dead. Oh, he's, he's, he's super dead. No, I don't think so. You think he's going to live? Uh, yeah, I think he needs, I think he's doing a redemption arc. He needs to make it back to his family. Oh, oh, interesting. Interesting. Hmm. He's, he's doing it kicking and screaming, but. (laughs) Interesting. Okay. Hmm. Uh, Luke Mott's going to die. It's going to be stupid. Um. Hmm. I don't know. What about Byron? I think Byron's going to survive. I hope Byron survives. 
if he dies, it's going to be self-sacrificial, of course. He needs to get out of the tower and run free. Run free? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like a deer. Exactly. Yeah. That's not like some pun I'm making. That's just literally what I'm going after. He talks about it. He thinks about it in his what he thinks are going to be his final moments. Where he's like, man, I would have liked to see the nice parts of the world. <laughs> yeah. Maybe some forests, mountains. I'm like, Aww. yeah, dude. Find your peace. Yeah. All right. All right, what about you? Predictions. Well, I kind of said them with you. Okay. Um, I was just curious if you had any other things. Hmm. Yeah. Um, no, not really. Sorry. That's fine. I mean, we've already I done a we lot of them. them. Yeah. And we did a bunch of them while we were talking about characters, too. Uh, well, if we're through predictions, I think that brings us to favorite scenes. Hmm? I know what my favorite is. Do you have two others? I have one other. You have one other. I'm going to think of the other one. Okay. So I'll go first then. Okay. So my third favorite is uh, Eigengrau's perspective through the periscope looking onto the bridge (laughs) as Rettleman just destroys his troops. I mean, it's it's a an unsettling scene. It's disturbing, but it it was so well written. That was good stuff. It was a great action scene. Great blend of action and horror. I guess what's coming to mind for me is Senlin playing, playing um, Penfield. At which point? I think the best one is the... Well, the one that comes to mind is the... When he's with Will and he orders... Oh, yeah, yeah. At the bar in the Coterie Club. (laughs) That is a great scene. (laughs) Like, the bartender's, like, gagging. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, how much do I owe you? And the bartender's like... I think I can give you this one on the house. <laughs> that is a good scene. No, I think Will says, I'm going to, I'll, I or, or, Oh yeah, that's what it is. Yeah. Will's like a, a, a warm water. Like, I think I can cover that. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's definitely. <laughs> nice. I mean, I, I thought about thinking, talking about the practice scene that he does with Byron. Where he's like, no, 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 disgust me, make me not want to oh, talk yeah, to you. Yeah. <laughs> that was also <laughs> funny. Yeah. Um, Bancroft does a good job with situational humor. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's that's definitely a, and I think it fits in really well with the setting because the Tower of Babel itself is so absurd that he can bring absurdity from the macro scale into the micro scale and build humor out of it. Yeah, yeah, it's like uh, Vegas and Disney World had a baby. Vegas and Disney World and the actual Tower of Babel from the Bible. 
No, no, I'm just mean like the absurdity part. Oh, the, sure. The like sure, extremism yeah. absurdity. Mm-hmm. You know, like we're gonna have all this, an insane amount of money towards insane projects, and we're just gonna go for it. Yeah, yeah. Cause we can. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Well, my second favorite scene is that final scene with Senlin and Luke Marat uh, in the throne room. Uh, there. <sighs> The tone of that scene is so tense, foreboding. I, I do think on reread, I won't like that scene as much because I know how it plays out. But reading that for the first time, man, I was on edge. Mm. Like I said, the just the possibility of Luke Marat trapping him Making him think, okay, you've passed the final test. I believe you now. Okay, here's the Sphinx. You gotta kill her. Like, that would have been... (sighs) That would have been so good. If that had actually happened, that would have been my favorite scene in the book. That would have been one of the ballsiest things I have ever seen an author do, if Bancroft had done that. Oh, my God. I would have thrown thrown the phone. Not not thrown it to break it, but yeah... But that was only my second favorite scene because it didn't happen. It was still excellent. But what was yours? I find myself hung up on the battle on the ship. Um, like, I, I want to say the, the red hand smoking people, but we don't get to see enough of it. So okay. I, I think it's more Byron. Byron, oh, yeah. That's great stuff. Yeah. Really is great stuff. I I love scenes from his point of view. It was such a fun moment realizing, oh, Ferdinand is why they didn't <laughs> let anybody go in the engine room. <laughs> He's been like deactivated and and like a secret weapon in there the whole time. He just stomps through. He's like, all right, play this song. Go go have fun. You don't need to be careful. <laughs> and he's just like, <laughs> just breaking yeah. guys' backs and yeah. ragdolling people. <laughs> oh, he's like trying to stand the one dude up. <laughs> His head's just like. <laughs> <laughs> I need to, I want to read it again now. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. okay. Next one. You first. Me first? I guess. Okay. Well, my favorite scene was. Senlin finally meeting Maria, going on the roller coaster, having the conversation. Oh, yeah. It was so good. Oh, yeah. It was just so dang good. I... That's all I can say. It was so dang good. Uh, the emotion, the, the, the catharsis in the scene, like... It's weird that it felt so satisfying despite happening barely over halfway through the series that he finally meets her. Like, in a less talented author's hands, I think that could have been a giant letdown of a moment where it's like, oh, you're not going to resolve the situation, but you're going to have them actually meet and talk. Like, I could have seen that falling super flat. But... Wow, the way the way he wrote their conversation, the way he wrote Senlin's emotions, his 
how disconcerted he was, how off balance he was. You feel his frustration. Uh, you feel his sadness. And by the end of it, you feel his anger. And the result is just a, a, maybe my favorite scene in the whole series so far. We'll say on top of that, it's a perfect example of what you don't do when you're feeling extreme emotion and that's make big decisions. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> in terms of like real life advice. <laughs> yeah. 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 In general, when, when which it, is hard, like look, and, it's and hard. honestly, like when a tragedy happens, everybody scrambles to do things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But your 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 reasoning skills when you're in high emotion are not as good. Right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So what was your favorite? The most cathartic scene of the book. Rescuing oh, yeah. Maria? Yeah, Edith stomping in. Yeah, breaking his hand and torturing breaking, him. <laughs> being like, shut up. Throwing him through a window. Shut up, stupid. Realm Maria, grabbing time him. to talk. <laughs> She's like, look, I can take care of this. <laughs> obviously. Obviously. Now, tell me in your own words and to the point where I can believe you, do you want to stay here? Yeah. Are you happy? No? Okay. Well, we're leaving. And she's like, well, I just have to get the... And then she's interrupted by Will. Yeah. He's like, get back in the room. (laughs) Shut up. Shut up. You want to know how it feels to be minus one appendage? Well, this is what it's like. It hurts. She's like, it's awful, but I think it's probably better than going through life without either hand. (laughs) She's like, now, do you want me to break your other hand? If you ever go after her, if if I ever hear a word of you trying to find where she is. So shut up, you small little man. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's a good choice. It's definitely a good choice of a scene. Uh, I think uh, it'd be fun to hear listeners' thoughts on what their favorite scenes were in this book. Um, If you're not on our Discord server, definitely check us out there. Uh, I think I have a permanent link uh, pinned on uh, on our Twitter account. Um, I may have to update that though. I don't know if Discord, you know, invite links expire. Um, Like I'm pretty sure I set it to be an indefinite one, but uh, either way, yeah. We got a really fun Discord community, and of course, you can always go on our Facebook page or our Twitter and and you know let us know your thoughts on on favorite scenes in this book. As as far as I can tell, this is a favorite. Like, it's not just our favorite, but a fandom favorite. Really? Yeah. Uh, so, uh, but before we wrap this whole thing up, we still have to talk about some beer for the final draft. That's right, and. Um... Drew actually got attacked by a chimney cat while he was trying to <laughs> fetch the beer. 
<laughs> we so we have a couple of little, you know like temperature controlled coolers uh like wine wine coolers and you know with racks and stuff inside uh that we store a lot of our most fun bottles of beer in and our cat just every time i get down on my knees to dig through these coolers he just comes over and wraps my ankle <laughs> and bites down like your achilles like occasionally he'll wrap it and and not attack and then it's just very comfy because he's fluffy and warm but but i never know because he's behind me wrapped around my ankle and i'm like all right is this going to be comfortable or am i going to suddenly feel needle sharp teeth and claws in my leg <laughs> <laughs> so it's always a <laughs> a perilous job of getting bottles out of the cooler <laughs> and he he's a little little black cat yeah yes uh, but he is spiky yeah, he's he's very soft and warm, except when he's sharp. <laughs> yes. But anyway, beer. We got to talk about beer here. Uh, which one do you want to talk about? Uh, the can. Okay. I think this is my favorite of the two that we did. This one? Yeah. Oh, definitely. Uh, this is really good. Yeah. All right. So, I used to work at another brewery. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called Wiley Roots, and this was their collaboration with Ren House and, and Superstition. Superstition, yeah, which is a meadery oh, in Arizona. You know, I need to ask. We we stole a brewer from them. Um, I need to ask if he worked on this project. I mentioned it to him at a at that party a couple weeks ago, and he didn't know. Uh, I don't remember what he said. I think he said he tried the beer, but he didn't directly work on it. I'd have to... Oh, man. It was it was very late in the night when I told him about that. I was like, yeah, I think we still have a can of this, in, you know, in the cooler. Um, which is pretty crazy because this can is from 2019. Oh, my gosh. So both of the beers we were drinking tonight are examples of uh, beers you can age. Yeah, so this one is a wheat wine aged in Laws Whiskey House Bourbon Barrels for 12 months and then finished for an additional 12 months in a Superstition Meadery Aphrodisia Syrah Barrel. Wow. So this is, this is a like honey wine aged in a red wine barrel and then that barrel used to age a whiskey barrel-aged wheat wine. You're a little backwards. No. Wheat wine in whis- in bourbon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm saying, like, they aged the, the mead in the red wine barrel, took that out, and then they put the bourbon barrel-aged wheat wine in that barrel. Yeah. Yes. Okay, you didn't have to... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. You're right. You're right. You do need that explainer. Okay. Sorry. To me, it's just like, well, it's a Syrah barrel. Of course there was, it's a wine barrel and then there was mead in it. Well, yeah, yeah. it's from Superstition Meadery. No, you're right. You're right. Most people aren't drinking <laughs> insane <laughs> beer like this. What's the ABV on this? 
It's 12%. 12%. Okay. That's actually lower than I was expecting. Yeah. My, it is boozy. It's. I mean, I'll be honest. When I first was reading it, I was like, is that by weight? Is it by weight or by volume? <laughs> <laughs> the beer is super good, though. Like It aged well. It aged great. I mean, the the honey, the mead, is very strong on it. This is really nice. Like, oh. So and, we, and when we say a wheat wine, this is a beer. This is not a wine. It's just a style of beer. It's just stronger yeah. than your average beer. Yeah. And, and I <laughs> smell that. When I smell it, I definitely get a strong alcohol smell. And and I think a lot of the bourbon barrel is coming off on the nose. But when you're talking something that's like wheat wine style... It lends itself well with those darker malts to the bourbon flavors. Hmm. They really blend nicely together. Yeah. Yeah. This beer is fantastic. I, and it didn't really get oxidized. (laughs) I've barely touched the other beer we had over the course of this episode. I've been drinking this. Yeah. And both of, both of us have been (laughs) going for this one. All right. But this one is called temporary residence. For Maria. She had her time in Pelfia. <laughs> well, I guess for all of them, they've yeah, all been and, bouncing around. And Anne, yeah. And I mean, the, the temporary residence for the other characters was more in earlier books, like Iron uh, in New Babel. And well, this one's so on the can, they have a van. They're van <laughs> like. <a> camper. <laughs> um, and I see that as the ships. That they've been traveling on. <laughs> nice. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, so the other beer that we have been drinking much less of, we still have like nearly full pours in our little uh, taster glasses here. Um, good thing this is only a 12 ounce bottle. Very strong. Um, yeah. What is the ABV? This one is 13.4%. So this is a uh, Russian Imperial Stout aged in bourbon barrels from Bell's Brewing Company. Um, I actually am pretty sure I've had this beer on the podcast before. Oh. I want to say for She is the Darkness Part 2. Ooh. Uh, going back a couple of years. Going back a couple of years to the Black Company. Um, man, I, I gotta say, the, the very first sip I took... So this is another old one. This was bottled on... October 16th, 2018. So this has been around for a while. Um, the flavor is still like, it's still the same flavor profile, but it is just so much more in your face. Like it's, it's like bitter roasty. You taste the barrel so intensely that it's like you have wood splinters in your mouth. Like, yeah. Yeah. Oh, but there is just that little hint of like candy sugar, like C-A-N-D-I, candy sugar. Um, man, there's there's like a, despite all of that, that bitterness and, and sharp wood, it finishes with this just subtle round sweetness. It is really, really just an incredible beer and and as well it should be this is a 
you know, an American craft beer Titan, uh, one of the first big time barrel aged stouts, um, Bell's Brewing Company, of course, from Michigan, they're one of the biggest craft breweries in the nation, um, legendary American brewery. Uh, but this is called Expedition Stout. And this is for uh, Senlin and John and Finn going on their their little expedition through the tunnels, through the chimneys of the tower. Uh, wasn't a particularly enjoyable expedition, unlike this beer, but... I will say it's hard to do a sweeter beer next to a stronger beer. The, yeah, the, the wheat wine is so much sweeter than this. The comparison oh, makes the bitterness a little bit more stark. Yeah. And we really should have a palate cleanser in between. Yeah, it's Oh, fine, Colorado Ale. We could have done. Oh, we could have done. Yeah, we, we've got some. It's a really good palate cleanser we just made, so. Yeah, from Waldbergs. Uh, but but it's okay. We We enjoyed the hell out of these beers. We enjoyed the hell out of this book. I'm excited. I think if he's going to continue getting better than this next book, he's going to be a doozy. Oh yeah, I'm I'm so curious to see what the next book. Did you already download it? Oh, I mean, I downloaded all of them back when we started reading them. Oh, yeah. Uh, although I have to download it, I lost my Kindle, so I had to buy a new Kindle, which was painful um so i have to i guess i have to like actually download the file on my kindle now uh anyway 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 this has been uh what i believe will be episode 205 of the inking out loud podcast uh next up probably is going to be the first half of uh the fall babble and and as i say that i realize i haven't actually looked up a Stopping point halfway through that. We are clearly still like getting back into the swing of things and getting used to, you know, how all of this goes. Uh, I'm, I'm going to actually look at the Fall of Babel right now. Ooh, I have it. Here it is. Okay, so it, it is 637 pages. So somewhere around, what, like 319? 319... Okay, so we're going to read through the end of chapter 12. Oh, man, Drew. Part 2, chapter 12. We're going to read through the end of part 2, chapter 12. I don't think I have an audio for this. Oh. Hmm. Okay, yeah. So, a little more than half of The Fall of Babel. Uh, the Fall of Babel, as my... Audio guy says. Oh, ooh. oh, I would hate that. Well, he's, he's British. <sighs> Do you hate? You know, just because he's British doesn't mean he has to mispronounce Babel. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry to all our British listeners if I'm like insulting, if, if this is like a cultural thing where it's like <laughs> it's the Tower of Babel. I don't know. I've just always heard the Tower of Babel. Anyway, uh, and immediately after, I may have just insulted listeners. If you want to support the show, check us out on Patreon. 
yeah, patreon.com slash aching out loud. Uh, like I said, at the top of the show, we've got, uh, a lot of fun, new perks going on. Um, as always, we have all the old stuff. We got all the bonus episodes, all the monthly fiction, uh, lots of goodies over there over the course of four and a half years. So consider supporting the show there. I have been your host, Drew McCaffrey, and with me is my co-host, panelist, special guest, wife, Lauren McCaffrey. (laughs) I get all the titles. All the titles. But that brings us to the end of things. So thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.